Thank you, choir. Oh, it's so good. We've gotten to stand here in the presence of God and sing a whole bunch of praise to him. And he's worthy of every single word of it. And worthy of more than that. Because he is the God of our salvation and we praise him this morning. Kids, you are uh, released uh, for your classes. Thank you so much for being in here. You know, when you sing a song like that, it really gives you... um, a better perspective on how awesome the Lord is and how much he is able to deal with our problems and our frustrations. I was in the grocery store yesterday and um, just picking up a few things and they had a good sale on a lot of things because food's gotten very expensive, right? How many know that's true? Food's just, it's just like off the charts now. So I was happy when I was back in the dairy section and saw that cheese was two for three dollars. Run out and get some today. Cheese is two for three dollars at your local store. That comes out to how much per cheese block, right? Tell me what the math is. How much per block? Dollar fifty, right? You guys need to go back to math class. So a dollar fifty per block of cheese. So I needed a bunch of cheese, so I bought five. And when I went to the register, it rung up at three seventy nine each. So I decided to be helpful and point that out to the guy who was checking it out. And he questioned it. And then he looked at his coupon book, even though I told him it's a store sale, it's not in the coupon, but he proceeded to go through every page of the coupon book. And then he sent the bagger guy back to the dairy section, which is all the way at the back of the store, to look at the tag. Now, the guy behind me has like mm, roughly 17,000 items on the conveyor belt, and he's ready to go. His cart's empty. He's staring at me with, I'm guessing, a look of derision. And um, so finally, the bagger guy comes back, and he says, yeah, it's, it's two for $3. Well, then the cashier tries to adjust it and, and start scanning the cheese again and again. And I'm watching it not discount, and I'm thinking, I'm going to pay $400 for my groceries because he rang up my cheese like 87 times. So finally, after a, a good period of time, the guy behind me now hates my guts. Finally, he, he scans it through, and it only discounts two of them. And he says, it's the same total. And I said, this is just not right. I'm not trying to be a jerk. But, but at this point, I just want my, my $6 back. Either that or just keep the cheese. I don't care. I can live without cheese at this point. So I said, you know what? Just ring it up. I'll go over to customer service. So I went over to customer service. And he questioned my story, and then he proceeded to look through every page of the coupon book, even though I told him it was a store sale. And then he started to look for somebody to send back to the cheese section. I said, no, wait a second. That guy right there, he already went back. He told me it's two for $3. I'm here like every day, okay? I'm not new. So so finally he said, well, maybe what happened? And this, this I don't usually tell jokes at the start, right? This is I have a point here. And finally, he said, well, well, sometimes there's a limit. I said, look, I'm here all the time. There was no limit. He said, well, sometimes it's set up in the computer so there's a limit, but it's not marked. I said, well, then how am I supposed to know there's a limit? I wasn't, you know, at that point, I think I probably had a little bit of attitude. I'm just guessing. And finally, after 12 minutes, I finally got my 672 back. You ever dealt with something like that? How'd you feel? I know how I felt. Did you get frustrated? Did you want to say, you know what? You eat the cheese. I'm going to make you eat the cheese, okay? 
How about that? How about we do that? You give me my money back and I'm going to make you eat the cheese. Or in those times, do you stay perfectly calm and stay holy in your thinking and just let it slide off your back, praising the Lord for patience? I got to be honest with you, that experience put me in a grouchy mood. And I didn't want to be in a grouchy mood, but for about an hour, I was just in a grouchy mood. I already had a little bit of residual frustration going on about some things. And and that got me into, and this is not, well, maybe it is like me. I don't know. It got me into just emotional turmoil where I was just irritated. I just, I just was annoyed. Something so simple, the price of cheese at the grocery store. But, but I got annoyed and my thoughts really st- started to mess with me. And hinder, even at some point, my, my confidence in the Lord. Now, even though that seems dumb and it's relatively harmless, what I experienced yesterday is what we all deal with. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning or whether you don't have a relationship with him, we all are in the middle of spiritual warfare. And that was a moment of spiritual warfare. You say, oh, come on, Paul, it's just cheese of the grocery store. No, it was a moment of spiritual warfare because I felt what it did to my spirit. I felt what it did to my my thinking and then my actions as a result of that. Now, this morning, we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're actually going to start with a couple of verses in, verse, uh, in chapter 9. Because before we see this morning how the Spirit of God tells us to fight in the middle of spiritual warfare, we have to see what God provides. We just sang for, what, 40 minutes about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the authority of God. But but as we go into warfare, even having a relationship with God, even knowing him as our Savior and Lord, we still are in the middle of this great battle. And the Spirit in chapter 10 is going to tell us, here's how you fight it. But before we get there, let's see exactly what the Lord does for us. And I have grown in the last 24 hours to love these verses, because I didn't plan on going back to chapter 9, but... Uh, always when you read scripture, right? How many have taken the Bible study methods class? We'll offer it again soon. Always when you read scripture, you go to context, right? Everybody say amen. Never just pull a passage out and say, I'm going to read this. This will be good for the day. And here we go. The only really uh, book we can do that with is the book of Psalms because they're individual songs. But when you read a passage like 2 Corinthians 10, don't just start 2 Corinthians 10. That's my reading for the day. And I'm just going to do that. Go back to chapter 9, see what's going on, because it has impact. The writers didn't write in chapter and verse. They wrote in a manuscript as the Spirit of God impressed their hearts. So what comes before has an impact on what we read now. And there are a couple of very important verses back in chapter 9. Start in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for all the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, which they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, this is an amazing passage, and we're going to study this passage at some point. We're going to take this passage apart in depth. But for now, just get a couple thoughts out of it to set the stage for chapter 10, okay? Chapter 9, verse 8, look at it. This is one of the greatest verses in Scripture of the sufficiency of God. Look at what he says. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundancy for every good deed. Now, that's eight demonstratives in case you weren't counting. And God doesn't throw around words. He doesn't use hyperbole for grins. He uses words very carefully. And the Spirit of God here uses eight different words that express just how far God is willing to help us. He is able, look at it, and he is willing, more than willing, to provide abundantly and completely for his children in every way and in every area with no deficiency. Think how many times the Holy Spirit says all, everything, all, abundance, all. He just keeps repeating it, almost to the point where you go, are you serious? And he says, I'm absolutely serious. This is what I'm willing to do for you. So for us to have powerless lives, for us to have lives that are weak and, and hindered and frustrated, listen, then, then how well do we know our Lord? Because he says, I will do it all. Then you go to chapter 9, verses 10 to 11. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched Again, look at the words, in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, not only does God supply the seed, but he multiplies it and makes it productive and increases above what he's already given to us. And as he helps and blesses us, our only response is what we just did, to praise him and offer thanksgiving to him. And then it says in verses 14 and 15 that he provides this by his surpassing greatness and this indescribable gift that we need to constantly thank him for, for giving as a gift to us. Now, this is important. We need to understand these verses because there's a spiritual principle here that is very important for us to grasp right now. And it's something we may know, it's something we may have heard before, but you can never hear enough truth about the Lord, right? And you can never hear enough truth from the Lord. So look at what he is saying because this sets up the next section. He is saying... I will always supply what you need in advance of your need. And then I already have faithful promises that I will fulfill as you move on and have further needs. Now let that just set in for a second. I will always provide what you need in advance. And when you start to move down the path into further need, I promise you I'll take care of it. Come on, that's a great truth this morning. That's what the Lord of all creation is saying to us. And he says, I'm going to give you an abundance of assurances. This is not just, well, kind of help you. Here are some partial assurances. We'll see how it goes. Let's get down the path a little bit. We'll see how you're doing and kind of assess the situation like we tend to hedge our bets with people. Well, I may help you. Let me just see how it goes and, and we'll assess. No, God, God's not assessing here. He says, I will abundantly supply and I assure you that it will happen. And to let you know just how great my faithfulness is, I'm going to give you an overwhelming, incredible overemphasis in this text on how good and faithful I am. And I will give it 
all. In other words, there's no lack. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? Do I believe that this morning? Because our faith is regularly tested on this principle. If we don't believe the Lord and rely on him for everything, from the huge to the tiny, then we don't really trust in him. The Lord does not want incomplete faith. He wants everything. He created us. He sent Christ. Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again. He promises us redemption when we trust. He fills us with his spirit. He assures us of eternal life with him. He gave us everything. And now he says here, I will keep giving you everything you need. Now, can we listen to that promise and say, Christ gave it all and God promises it all, but I'm only giving part. I'm only going to give you a little bit, Lord. Well, you know, I got circumstances. And, and, and I've got, you know, I, I've got trust issues, God. And, and, and I don't know. Let me, let me find out more. God says, no, look at the cross. It's empty. It's empty because my son died for you. And look at the tomb. It's empty. I'll give you a precursor for two weeks from now. The tomb's empty. The tomb's empty because Jesus didn't stay dead. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated the devil. And because of that, he says, when you trust in me, I will give you eternal life. He gave it all and he will give it all. Now he says, here's what I want in return. I want all. Because anything less would be a joke. Now, transition into Paul's next thought, because so much of the battle in Corinth, and we've studied Corinth before, was their struggle against pride in their hearts and their struggle against worldliness in their daily lives. And those two things always go hand in hand. That's an undeniable truth. And it plays out in ways that are far more subtle than we sometimes discern. Where there is pride, there is worldliness on some level. And where there is worldliness, there is pride. Those two go together because pride is the devil's motivator and pride has the stink of hell. The Corinthians were proud. If you want to study that more, look back at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. You can look at those later. If you want to know whether they were worldly, study chapters 8 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. They were proud and they were worldly. They claimed to be Christians. It seems like they were Christians, but they were not living sanctified, set-apart lives. They were still wrestling with their own desire for themselves, and they were wrestling with a desire for the world, which is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul is so harsh with them, and I mean harsh in a good way. He's so direct with them. Now we get to 2 Corinthians, and he's a little more encouraging, but he still senses there's some spiritual resistance. So he not only teaches them the truth, but he says, look at me, look at my transformed character as example, because I'm telling you, if anybody used to be proud, it was me. Philippians chapter 3. If anybody was worldly, even as I was walking around as a Pharisee, so committed to my religion that I was persecuting Christians. Listen, I know what proud is and I know what worldly is, but look at what God's done. And that gets us into chapter 10. He says, look at what Christ has done for me. Read it. Now I, Paul, myself, 
urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard it as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whether, where, excuse me, whenever your obedience is complete. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he's Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Now let's take that apart a little bit. Paul starts this section in verse 1 by urging them to action. I hope that word's in your text or another word just that strong. It's an awesome Greek word. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo not only means to exhort and to beseech and to encourage and to strengthen. Parakaleo also means to call to one side. Now, what makes that word so special is that the word, that's the word that the Holy Spirit uses for himself. He is the paraclete. The parakaleo, the one who does parakaleo is the Holy Spirit. He's called the paraclete. He comes alongside of us and he encourages us and challenges us and convicts us and strengthens us. So Paul's not only saying here, I'm reminding you that the Holy Spirit does this work on your behalf. He's also saying, now I'm acting as an agent of the Holy Spirit to be your parakaleo. I'm acting as an emissary of the Spirit to come alongside you and to challenge you. You know, that's a role that every believer has. And I think we underestimate it way too much, or we don't realize that it's our tremendous calling. We're called to build each other up and exhort and encourage and challenge and confront and to pray fervently for each other as we serve the Lord together. In other words, you are my parakaleo and I'm your parakaleo. We have that responsibility toward each other. And notice what Paul writes about the attitude with which we're to serve this way. He reminds them of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and and sacrificed himself for us. So he says, as you minister to each other, do it with an attitude of humility and grace and sacrifice. And he says, when I was with you, I was a little different. I was more meek. I was more gentle. I wanted to try to gently encourage you because you're new in your faith and you're and you're not quite where you need to be. So I I nurtured you. But listen, now that I'm gone, let let me give it to you really straight. He's not being a jerk here. He's just saying, I'm going to be very bold with you. We're not going to soft sell the issue anymore. You read in my first letter. I'm not really messing around. So now I'm writing you again and I'm saying we've got to be called out to righteous living. Why? Go to verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. The reason we're called to this is because we're in a war. There is an intense spiritual battle that's going on. And even though we live here in the physical world, we have to understand that what we are fighting is spiritual. And that's what Paul's encouraged them about for so many chapters. You're so caught up in living in the world and trying to please the world that you don't recognize that you're in the midst of a fight and the Holy Spirit's going to be the one who gives strength to you. You remember our verse from last week, John 6, 63? It is the Spirit who gives life. 
but the flesh is no help at all. That's this. That's Jesus' words being fulfilled to Corinth. And that's what Paul's telling him. Look at verses 2 to 4. Four times in 27 words, I counted, four times in 27 words, he uses the word flesh. He is challenging them, challenging their reliance on their flesh to fight in a spiritual battle because that approach is always a losing position. When we try to fight a spiritual conflict with our flesh, we're going to lose. We will lose every time. I found that on Fridays and Saturdays that, that I am now fighting more discouragement, more worry, more lack of confidence than I ever have before. And I'm starting to, to, to kind of chart this in my brain and say, all right, what's going on here? Well, we're going into battle this morning. I'm, I'm now in a battle position. I have responsibility before the Lord to bring the word of God. Uh, that's a, that's a, a double honor, and it's also a, a double responsibility because I'm now accountable for every word that comes out of my mouth, that I've prepared my heart, that I've prayed, that I've studied, that I've done my work to prepare to be spoken, uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit speaking through me to you and to myself. This is a battleground. So what does the devil try to do? He tries to distract. He tries to discourage. He tries to interrupt intense time of study. And he wants to to get me and get you away from the word of God because he knows just how dangerous and damaging this word is to his temporary little kingdom. And that hit me last night as I really got down into intense study after a really busy week. The word of God, I mean, it was like... You put a giant fan on my spirit. I mean, this is just, what, two hours after my lovely experience with the cheese? And I'm irritated and I'm tired and the clock's ticking and I got to get studying harder and, and I got things that the Lord's put on my heart and I've got to organize them. And I opened up the word and it was like, whew, just a cool, fresh wind across my spirit. And instantly, instantly, I was encouraged. Instantly, God started to reveal thoughts. Instantly, I felt joy. Instantly, it was like, did something happen with cheese earlier? Because I can't remember. Listen, we need to hear that this morning. We talk about reading and studying the Bible, and you're a faithful church to do that. But, but how often is that just kind of lip service? Listen, if you're a teenager this morning, if you're a young adult this morning, I really feel this strongly for you guys. You are wrestling with invasive pressure from the world. You are wrestling with your peers doing things around you that you are drawn to. And it is so easy to succumb to that. We've been there. We were teenagers. And parents, we need to be praying harder for our kids more than we are, not just for our own kids, but for all the kids of this church. This needs to be fervent for us. But let me tell you, teenagers, and let me tell you adults, too, because this is for us, too. We need time in the word of God every day. We need the strength and authority of God's word over our lives because we are weak without it. We're too weak to combat the devil without the word of God and without the Holy Spirit because we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are wrestling with powerful forces of spiritual opposition that can only be overcome by our victorious Savior. I cannot beat spiritual opposition. On my own. My flesh is far too weak. 
but I'm not on my own. The Lord is in our lives. So knowing that, look at the text and let's try to draw to a conclusion. Because this text is so encouraging. First truth, verse 3. Our war is not according to the flesh, it's spiritual. Our war is not according to the flesh, it's spiritual. Second, verse 4, the weapons that were given to fight this spiritual warfare are not flesh. In other words, don't try to overcome temptation, don't try to overcome difficulty and sin by trying harder and by making promises and by thinking happy thoughts. How do I know that's not the right way to go? How do I know that's not sufficient? Well, what really impressed me as I studied this text is the aggressive and active verbs that the Holy Spirit uses. And and listen, we got to be English students for a second. There are verbs here that yell at us, that say, pay attention. Because look at what the Holy Spirit says. Verse 4 says we've been equipped with an arsenal of divinely appointed spiritual weapons that have one purpose. Verse 4 says the only purpose for these weapons is to destroy the spiritual fortresses that have been built to try to deter us from walking in faith and holiness. But notice that as we're equipped and empowered by the Spirit to fight this, that each of these verbs puts the responsibility back on us. So what did I just say? The Holy Spirit gives me the power. Is he indwelling my life? Yes. Is he filling my life? I hope so. I hope I'm filled overflowing. Does he give me the power and sufficiency to fight? Does he give me weapons of warfare that are spiritual? Absolutely. All of that is true. But he also says you have responsibility. Because you can have swords in your arsenal. You can have guns in your house. You can have all the shields in the world. If you don't pick them up, they're worthless. If I've got a shield and somebody's coming with a sword and I go, boy, this is a nice shield. It's gold. It's engraved. It's beautiful. Look at that. And the guys run at me and I'm going, don't you, isn't this a beautiful shield? Isn't this great? Look at this. Wow. And the guys come with a knife and I'm going, wow, I wish I had something to defend myself. He's given us the arsenal, but we've got to use it. We are called here, and we're going to take apart the verbs in a second. We are called to forceful action to fight the spiritual forces that are opposing our faith and our maturity. And notice that each of these verbs is offensive, not defensive. Listen now, this is vitally important. Each of the verbs is offensive, not defensive. In other words, we are not just supposed to stand back on our heels, putting up our defenses, hoping we can withstand the attack and ward it off somehow. He says you are to be preemptive and you are to be strong and you are to combat the opposition before it gains any ground. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we have the full armor of God, but now the Spirit calls us to use it in three distinctive ways. Let's take a couple minutes on each and we'll pray. Number one, look at verse five. We fight by destroying, that's the verb, by destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Look at that first verb, destroying. It means to pull down with force, like taking down the walls of a castle. There's no passivity there. 
There's no uh, kind of mushiness in there. The Holy Spirit is calling us to intentional, aggressive, thorough response in preparation against attacks that have efficiency unless we use what he gives us. Now you say, well, what are speculations and things rents against the knowledge of God? Literally, that means all the arguments and all the, all the reasoning that's hostile to Christianity. All the arguments that raise man above God. All the ones that say man is more important to God. The Bible has no use for your life. It's irrelevant. It's old. Come on, it's outdated. Really, you're still reading that? It's what says man is superior to God. Man's standards are better than biblical holiness. You don't need God. Now, he's not talking about the cultural wars here. Notice that this is a personal text. This is going to be the battle against your heart and mind. And he says, here's how you fight the spiritual battle. You don't fight it by being timid. You fight it by destroying it. In other words, when things come along that contradict the Bible, you don't allow them, you don't rationalize them, you don't say, well, let's look at the options. You say, the word of God is the word of God, and I have no time for that. If if something comes along that, that you're being influenced by, a person or a thing that, that, that presents itself as better and wiser than the Lord, you say, I don't have time for that. I don't even have enough time to study my Bible. If I'm going to be influenced by anything, I'm going to get down with my word, sit down and study that. I don't have time for this junk. And that's all it is. It's junk. But this is where sin begins. There's no better example of that than looking what the enemy said to Adam and Eve. We keep falling for it, so we have to keep exposing it. The enemy will say, God is not truthful with his promises. He isn't sufficient to help you, and your way is better than his. He has not changed his temptation one ounce in six or 7,000 years. God hasn't kept his word. He will not help you. Do your own thing. It's so simple and it's so repetitive, but it's effective. And when we hear it, we can't give it any room to breathe. We can't give it any space. We have to destroy it. Second, verse 5. He says we're to take every thought captive. That's the verb. Captive. To the obedience of Christ. Now look at that word captive. And I pray the Holy Spirit will help me explain this. Because this concept has been really strong in my heart the last couple of days. The word captive means to take as a prisoner. And this is essential if we're going to be spiritually strong in Christ. The Spirit includes that last line, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He includes that because the implication is if we don't take every thought captive, we are in disobedience to Christ. Now, that's an interesting concept because many times in our daily lives, like me at the grocery store yesterday, it's not even 24 hours old. It's still bugging me. Like me at the grocery store, we need, we know, and I knew in that moment, I knew that I need to take this proud thought captive. Okay, I'm having to wait a couple minutes to save money. There are people around the world that don't even experience cheese, that don't even have bread, but I'm standing here griping because I had to pay six extra dollars. 
And I'm irritated because it's taking me 10 minutes. Wow. And I knew I needed to take those thoughts captive. And then we have thoughts like selfishness or lust or jealousy or some kind of nasty sin. And we allow it instead of confessing it and putting in its spiritual jail. Or we keep rehashing conversations where where people have hurt us. Or or we think about uh, some kind of fear and some kind of worry that we have. And we allow that to, to make us discouraged and disillusioned. You know what we're doing? We're opening the cell door to what God's already defeated and put in bondage. And we're saying, come on out. You, you can have some space. We don't ask it questions about why it's exploiting and what weakness we need to shore up. And we don't ask why it appeals to us. We don't look for similar enemies that are, that are waiting to attack us on the same vein. We, we, we just don't even protect ourselves. The Bible doesn't say, take every thought captive and then a couple minutes later, give it parole. Capture it. Put it in jail, and then, you know what, when you calm down a little bit, let it out. It's fine, it won't hurt anybody. He says, take every disobedient thought and intention captive, put it in jail, close the door, lock it, and tell it to sit back and enjoy itself because it's not getting out. When I had those thoughts of anger and frustration and irritation and pride, I should have said, you know what? I'm not going to allow this any room to grow. I'm going to put it in jail and I'm going to lock the door. So nothing comes out of my mouth that would be uh, in any way uh, inconsistent with my walk and my testimony. So my mind wouldn't start to get really frustrated and play out for the next hour. Uh, I needed a change in perspective. Why? Because these thoughts that Paul's talking about here are like criminals. They're ruthless. They keep coming at us. I looked up last night what it means to commit a war crime. Listen to the definition and how well it parallels temptation. A war crime is a serious violation of the laws of war giving rise to individual criminal responsibility. Now, as people that have trusted in Jesus Christ and who live as redeemed, transformed people, allowing thoughts to be freed from jail is a violation of the spiritual war that we are fighting, and it makes us responsible for what we've done. And it's not just evil thoughts that we have to take captive. Look back at the verse. He says, take, tell me the next word, every thought captive. Take every thought captive. Hey, you say, well, Paul, come on. Why do we need that much control and that uh, control and that much restraint? What about my freedom and about my liberty? What he is saying is every thought that goes through our mind needs to be judged in the courtroom of righteousness. And we need to evaluate. Is that going to benefit my life and my spiritual growth? Or do I need to put that in jail? Is that going to make me more holy? Is that going to edify somebody? Is that going to help my witness? Or is that going to drag me down? Take every thought captive. Third, especially when we see the criminal opposition to this temptation, the third thing he says is punish all disobedience. That's the verb, punish it. Strange, strange word. The word has the implication of vengeance. 
In other words, we're standing against it and we're destroying its influence in our lives because we have seen the damage it has done and can do. And here's how we're going to fight it. We're going to be fighting, fight it by being faithfully obedient. Do you know the best way to get revenge against sin and temptation? It's to be holy. The best revenge against sin and temptation is to be holy. Why? Because sin has no attack for holiness. When sin sees holiness, when the devil sees holiness, he says, I can't touch that. When he sees weakness, he's like, oh, we're going to have some fun today. We're going to see that crack right there, demons. We're going to exploit that. Divide that. See that wedge in that marriage? Go right after it. See that, see that hostility, that tension in the church? Go right after that. You see that weakness in that believer who stands and sings about the greatness of God? You go right after it. But when he comes up against holiness, he says, I got no game. Because sin has been defeated by Christ. It has no ownership. So the only way sin can have any latitude in our lives is when we open up the cell door and say, come on out and play. And that's when the devil can use it. So look at what we've been called to do. Let's conclude. We've been called to destroy whatever opposes and denies the Lord. We've been called to take captive every thought that makes us proud and disobedient. And we've been called to punish that disobedience when it tries to infiltrate our lives. Now, I want you to notice there is absolutely nothing passive or negotiable in those verbs. There is nothing passive or negotiable in those words. These are the only options. So let's ask ourselves a final question. Why aren't we more effective in these areas? Why after 40 years of trusting in Christ this summer, 40 years of trusting in Christ and being his disciple, does the wrong price of cheese cause me to be so emotionally unhinged and for unsanctified thoughts to start to brew in my heart. Why don't I look at that and say, this is obvious spiritual warfare, and I need to put that in jail before it affects me, which honestly it did for a while. Here's why. Look back at verse 7 and we'll pray. He says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he's Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. What's the point? The problem for the Corinthians, and we know this from studying the books, and the problem for many Christians is that we're still looking at things outwardly. Now, by that, Paul means that we are walking by the flesh and we're still filtering what we should do based on our instincts and our emotions instead of by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul kind of scolds us in the verse. And I use that word carefully, but look at it because he asked the question, are you confident you're in Christ? Because the reverse is true. Someone who belongs to Christ wouldn't think and act that way. Someone who's been saved 40 years would recognize that this is Saturday night and the issue is not the price of cheese. The issue is the preparation of your heart. Someone that loves the Lord will recognize that and they won't let the criminal out of the cell 
to bait you into sin and obedience, especially when you're wearing a Harbor Rock hoodie. That's right. I was representing. And it was good I was wearing that hoodie. <laughs> but I had to look down and say, wait a second. What's, what's the deal here? Am I going to let that criminal out of the cell to go around and mess with me? I got to stop looking at things outwardly. Because here's what God tells me. I'm the one who's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you have abundancy for every good deed. And you know what? I'm the same God who forgave you and saved you and bought you and redeemed you and declared you my own and indwell and empower you. So Rhodes, church, if your thoughts are impure and angry and jealous and worried and fearful and proud and rebellious. He has provided a way for those thoughts to be restrained and made powerless. How? By walking in complete obedience. And once those thoughts go into prison, don't let them back out. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 6. He says, sin has been defeated and it is put in jail. Don't go over and open up the door. Your sin has been put to death forever. We're still in warfare. Warfare doesn't stop. It'll get more intense. But God says you have the power to overcome it and be victorious. So be wise and be discerning and aggressively deal with sin. And know that in the middle of the battle, you've got all my power and all my help. Praise the Lord, right? Let's pray. Let the word settle into your heart just for a moment. What thoughts this morning do you need to keep, take captive? What do you need to deal with aggressively? Come on, it's time to stop being passive about our sin. It's time for us to really, really deal with it. We're approaching the season where we are made so aware that Christ took our sins on the cross and defeated them and rose again to give us eternal life when we trust in him. And we're going to keep messing with sin. Take those thoughts captive. Confess to the Lord this morning what needs to not keep getting released because you keep opening that door. It's nobody else's responsibility but yours and mine. Lord, we know this morning that you are gracious. We praise you for that. You are a gracious and merciful God. You love us more than we can fathom. Your forgiveness is complete. You don't remember our sins and iniquities anymore. So, Lord, why do we keep running back to them? I pray this morning you would stir our hearts. I pray you would draw us to conviction, Lord that our thoughts would be captive, that we would destroy what opposes you, what attacks our mind and our heart, that we would not give it any air. Lord, there would be no latitude for sin. 
that we would take it on and destroy it by your power. You are sufficient. You said eight different ways. I will do it all. Lord, we have to trust in that now. And we have to rely in that strength. So, Father, help us this morning. Because the calling that we have to serve you and to represent you is so wonderful, Lord. And you're so wonderful. And, Lord, we don't want to get caught up in ourselves. So help us. Thank you for what you've already done. Draw us to conviction now, Lord, as even in the next few minutes, our hearts and our minds will go back to thoughts that need to be taken captive. Make us acutely aware. And Lord, give us the strength and conviction to be aggressive about dealing with it. We praise you, Lord. We praise you for what you've done. We love you. We're so thankful for your goodness in our lives. We pray now as we go that you would strengthen us for the battle that we all face, knowing that you have won the victory forever. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.